Let me invite you to turn to, once again to the book of Genesis uh, as we return back to Genesis after a, a little bit of break during the, the Advent season. Uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 37 this morning, and uh, if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, you can find that on page 31. Uh, Genesis 37, uh, we'll begin in verse 1 this morning. I do hope you can follow along in God's Word. We are picking up our study of Genesis now, moving into the the story of Joseph, and it's somewhat of a transition in the book of Genesis, and uh, so part of what I'll do this morning is, is kind of introduce you to the overall themes of the story of Joseph, in addition to working through the, the text in front of us. So I just want to forewarn you that my introduction this morning is a little bit long. Uh, do not become alarmed. I'm aware of the length of that introduction, and we'll pick up speed as we move into the text. Okay, so here we are in Genesis 37 and, uh, and verse 1. Please hear now the word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any, of, any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheave. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you to, indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Shall we pray? Father, we're, we're thankful for your word this morning, which we can consider and I trust you would like to speak to us through it. We, of course, are studying the life of Joseph here as your word lays out for us, and yet we're reminded that our Lord Jesus said, all scripture testifies to me. So even as we consider this, our brother in the faith, will you help us to have eyes for Jesus as well? May we see something of the gospel here, something of God's love for sinners here and his willingness to save them. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In an interview by a, a Southern Baptist missionary named Nick Ripkin, he uh, interviewed a man named Pramana. You could read this interview in his book, uh, The Insanity of God. It's somewhat of an extraordinary interview, and I have no way to verify the truthfulness of, of this interview, but I, I share it with you uh, with that uh, little description, if you will. Uh, Pramana lived his entire life in a tropical country. He was among, lived among a people group of about 24 million people uh, that practiced a form of uh, pagan Islam. Uh, there came to a time in Pramana's life when everything was kind of miserable in his life. His marriage was falling apart. He's contemplating divorce. His animals were dying. His crops were failing. And so he went to his local Amman who told uh, Pramana to sacrifice a white chicken and then fast for three days, and on the third day he would receive an answer to all his problems. And so Pramana did as he was instructed. On the third day, about midnight, he had a dream. In the dream, he heard a voice that said, find Jesus. Now Pramana had no idea who Jesus was. He didn't even know Jesus was a person. He thought it might be a fruit or a, a tree, a, a rock. What is a Jesus? He wondered. The dream continued, and this is what he records. In, in the dream, he heard these words, get out of bed, go over the mountain, and walk down to the coast, 
to a particular city, a city which he had never been. When you get to that city at daybreak, you will see two men. When you see those men, ask them where a particular street is. They will show you the way. Walk to that street and look for a particular number on that street. When you find that number, knock on the door. When the door opens, tell the person why you have come. And so he woke up from his dream about midnight, and he got dressed, and he left his house, and he began to climb up over a mountain, and then down into the city, um, and arrived in that city about daybreak. There he saw two men. He asked them where this street was. They directed him to a street. He found a number on the door. He knocked on the door. An older man opened the door, and Pramana asked him, uh, I'm sorry, I've come to find Jesus. The man quickly grabbed Pramana, pulled him into his house, and said, you think I'm a fool to fall for that trap? Now, Pramana had no idea what, 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 what this man was talking about, why he was upset. He explained to this man how he had come to his house, uh, that, that he had this dream. And it just so happened, according to Pramana, of the 24 uh, million people in this people group, Westerners know of, of three Christians of the 24 million people, he happened to find his way to one of their homes. That man shared the gospel with this Muslim man, led Pramana to faith in Christ, and Pramana would live with this man for the next two weeks as he taught him everything he knew about Jesus. Now, if you find that somewhat extraordinary, maybe, uh, you know, I, I have a skeptical streak to me, I must say. Um, I'm helped by a similar recounting with Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, who once declined a wedding invitation because his wife had a dream that he'd be murdered on the way. And when he wrote his regrets, he said, my heart is full of pity for my dear wife, Katie, who would be half dead with worry by the time I returned. Well, it just so happened, sometime later after the wedding, a friend wrote to him these words. It was discovered that four men, four young noblemen were lying in wait for you. Therefore, my friend, kiss your Katie's hand and thank her for under God's guiding, she has kept you from danger. Dreams are interesting, aren't they? I mean, how, what do we make of dreams? Is it, is it God speaking to us through our dreams? Is it a voice of our subconscious? Some people think dreams are our mind's mental doodling when they're doing nothing else. Perhaps Sigmund Freud is right, who says dreams are, are about childhood sexual drama. That's why we're dreaming. Other cultures have very different views of dreams. The ancient Egypt, for instance, uh, very highly valued dreams. They thought the dreams contained messages from God. They had uh, professional dream interpreters there. They would be very attentive to dreams. Of course, in our study of the book of Genesis, we've seen dreams over and over again, haven't we not? Uh, you might recall uh, King Abimelech had a dream where God admonished him for taking another man's wife, taking uh, Sarah. Uh, the wife of Abraham. Remember Jacob had a dream of a ladder from heaven to earth on which God had descended and entered into a covenant with him. Remember Grandpa Laban who had a dream while he was pursuing Jacob and in the dream God th uh, threatened him and said, don't you lay a hand on him, he belongs to me. And of course these dreams will continue in the book of Genesis. They'll be very, very prominent in the study of Joseph. And so let me welcome you uh, to our study of Joseph, the next 14 chapters in the book of Genesis, all the way through the end, primarily, no, though not exclusively, deal with Joseph. Uh, so 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, just as many chapters that were devoted to Abraham, believe it or not, the father of our faith, are devoted to Joseph. I think you're going to like Joseph. I think you're going to appreciate him. He is perhaps the greatest model in the Old Testament of a godly man, um, and, and I, after our study of Jacob, we kind of need a model of what godliness looks like, right? Joseph's going to walk his entire life with God. He's going to be incredibly loyal to God, devoted to him, despite the fact that his life contains unbelievable hardship. Very, very difficult times. In fact, uh, the, Joseph is one of, of the two major characters in the Old Testament in which really nothing negative is said about. Uh, the other, uh, if you're interested, is Daniel. You don't find anything really negative about Daniel or Joseph. It's also kind of interesting to think those guys are very similar, have very similar lives, didn't they? They're both sold into captivity, into a foreign land as young men. Both would not make compromises in the face of temptation. Both would therefore be jailed uh, for their obedience to God. Both would interpret dreams to kings. And both would be highly exalted because of their dream interpretations. 
You can learn, I think, much from both of these men. I I think we'll learn much from Joseph. I've already learned in my study of him as I've been uh, working through the past couple months these chapters. You see this is a man who both in public and private has a steadfast and devotion uh, commitment to God. And he does so, um, and and I think this is important to note, all, uh, all this commitment to God, and God never will once appear to Joseph. We've seen him appear to Abraham many times. He appeared to Grandpa Isaac. He keeps continually appears to Jacob, and he'll do so even in, in these coming chapters. Once again, he'll come to Jacob, but he will never once, God, to the best of our knowledge, never once will, will com- appear or communicate to Joseph in, in that way. And nevertheless, Joseph had this unwavering commitment to him, um, this devotion to him. One commentator says he, he was, that, speaking of Joseph, a loved and hated Uh, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted and abased, yet at no point in the 110 years of Joseph did he ever harden his character. He was truly a great man. And I think uh, that's true. I think he will teach you, as he has been teaching me, how to forgive. He'll teach us how to be free from bitterness, how to live through hardship, how to be sexually pure, how to be humble in the midst of prominence, how to trust God's word, how to rest in God's sovereignty. In fact, I think the, the biggest the biggest lesson, Joseph can teach us a great deal of things, but the biggest lesson about the life of Joseph is not really about Joseph. It's about Joseph's God. Right? N- namely, what we'll primarily learn is that God is in control of all of life. See, Joseph is not simply a, a moralistic character. It's not, not simply a story of the godliness of Joseph. It's, it's far more a story of the faithfulness of God as he rules and does so rather quietly. We, we call this the doctrine of providence. providence. I think if Jacob is a study of God's grace, then Joseph is the study of God's providence. It's very much like the book of Esther, this case study of how God works behind the scenes, doesn't really show up in, in powerful ways, and yet continues to work. You know, and I, I think it's helpful, perhaps, to think about putting all this together in our study of Genesis. You know, sometimes God works uh, in very obvious ways. We've seen this in the book of Genesis, that God works miraculously. He, he comes to Abraham, and he shows up uh, and, and enters into a covenant with him. He opens Sarah's womb that has been closed for those 90 years. He stops the sacrifice of Isaac. He, he puts Jacob in a headlock and busts his hip, as we've seen, right? And we've, we've seen that God is working miraculously. That's what God, God works miraculously. But sometimes he doesn't. In fact, usually... He doesn't. But that doesn't mean God's not working. Right? He's working behind the scenes. So we might think that miracles are God's visible work and, we, and, and providence is God's hidden work. And the reason I, I'm bringing this up is I think we're in a transition in the book of Genesis where we move from the loud miracles that we've been seeing over and over again to the quiet and subtle providence of God. As we learn from, from these stories in front of us, that God is, is ruling, even though we can't see it, even though things are difficult and hard. You see, as Christians, we don't believe God made the world and said, good luck. I hope it works out for you. hope you enjoy it. You know, do your best. We don't believe that. As Christians, we don't believe in chance or luck. We also don't believe in fatalism, the other extreme, like Islam does, where, where your choices don't matter. No, we think our choices do matter. We think our our choices are moral or immoral. They have real-world consequences. We think we can do good and bad. That has real impact. Yet we believe, despite it all, over it all, I should say, God uses it, whether good or bad, for his purposes and does so without explanation, does so without attention. God is guiding the world to its appointed and gracious conclusion. God is doing that right now, guiding this world to the end in which he has appointed now, the conclusion which he's appointed, as we think about uh, the, the time of, uh, of history in which we're studying this morning, is that God intends to create a nation called Israel. Joseph, as you know, is one of 12 sons, just to catch us up. He's got one sister named Dinah. He's, uh, he has 12 sons, very big family, right, 13 kids. That's a big, big family. I, 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 so I don't want to hear about my eight kids anymore, okay? Tired, tired of hearing about it, to be honest. I don't know why it is that... Uh, I don't know if, if this happens to you, but when I'm out in public, strange people walk up to me, and they often ask this question, are they all yours? Right? 
And, and I want to say, no, I stole a couple, actually, and, and just kind of walk on my way. So people just kind of look at that, and they think that's weird. Thirteen, okay, there's 13 in this family. The 12 sons, 12 sons, one daughter, the 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. In 400 years, we'll see, they'll go from about 70 people to millions of people. They'll form this mighty nation, and this nation, Israel, will be very important in God's uh, uh, history of redemption, won't it? Because this nation, Israel, is going to receive God's covenant in order to show the world what it's like to live in God's kingdom. So God chooses Israel not in exclusion of the nations, but for the benefit of the nations. So says, come into covenant to me, show the world what it's like to live in my kingdom in order that they might know who I am and that they might uh, want to receive uh, my kingdom. Of course, God's kingdom is simply God's people living in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. And so they're going to live God's people in God's place under his rule, enjoying God's blessings so that they might testify to the world what it's like to be reconciled to God and to follow God and to enjoy God's blessing. And so God uh, intends for this nation to form, and yet this nation is going to lead us, as we see in the New Testament, uh, to extend this kingdom, I should say, is going to extend to all nations, right? That's why Andrew's going to Guatemala, because it's just not one kingdom. It's all nations now that God wants to bring into his kingdom. But in order for this to happen, the nation Israel must bring forth a Messiah, must bring forth a Savior. Therefore, if, if this nation dies out, God's plan will fail. And the story of Joseph is how God won't let that happen. That God is going to rule to accomplish this plan to raise up this nation. And, and I, I, I believe that's true for, for Joseph. I believe that's true for this world, I, I think that's true for you, that God is ruling in your life to accomplish his good purposes, that he is working all things in your life for his good purposes, um, and, and I believe, I, I hope that, that God would just imprint that upon our heart as we study this, this man. I wonder, uh, how would your life be different if you believed everything that happened to you was being used by God ultimately good. I mean, everything that in your life, if you believe everything that happens, God is using for good. So you get a bad grade, you get passed over from a promotion, right? You miss the party, uh, you, you're born with a disability, you're a victim of abuse, like small things, big things, right? Good things, bad things. How would, li how would your life be different if you truly believed that God is in this. He, God may not, he, God's not responsible for it in, in the moral sense. Perhaps God didn't cause it in that sense, but he has a plan for it. He's going to use it for good. E even when you're hated, perhaps. Even in the midst of adversity. Well, if you believe that, you might have hope. So we th see this in, in Genesis 37 here. Hope amidst hatred. Because of the word of God. And so let's consider God's word this morning. Now that our introduction's over. Uh, we'll, we'll see this, this hope amidst hatred in this study. As we begin with recognizing the favoritism of Joseph's father. You see that in here in verse 1. Uh, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. In the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. See that little phrase. These are the generations of Jacob. You see that repeatedly through Genesis. You see that. Just look at chapter 36, verse 1. These are generations of Esau. You, you see that a number of times. Those always mark significant transitions in the book of Genesis. So we know we're in a, a transition here. These are the generations of Je uh, Jacob. And then we're immediately introduced to Joseph. And we read Joseph being 17 years old. And so we, we start with a 17-year-old. A now this 17-year-old has lived a lot of life in those 17 years. And just remember the life in which he's lived. Remember the secret flight in the middle of the night from his enslaving grandpa. And then the scary encounter with Uncle Esau and the army of 400 in which dad comes into that encounter crippled for the rest of his life. Okay? And then we saw Genesis 34. His sister is raped by a prince. And then his brothers go and slaughter an entire town. And then once again, they need to flee in the middle of the night and get out of town. And finally, if you read the story, it just catches up. Finally, there's some good news in Joseph. Mama is pregnant, and Mama has always wanted another son, another child at least. 
In fact, the name Joseph means may he add another. And finally, uh, about 12 or 13 years, Rachel gets pregnant. I wonder if you think Joseph is thinking, is it a boy? Is it a girl? Right? I'm going to have a little sibling. And, and perhaps he stands outside the tent as he hears mama groan in, 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 in her labor. And, and then hears that beautiful cry of that baby. And out comes dad. And he says, son, you got a little brother. And I wonder if he thought, you know, I get to be a... I get to, get to have a little brother. I'm going to be a big brother. I'm going to pal around with my little brother. I'm going to show him everything. I'm going to teach him everything. And he begins to think how glorious it is that, that I get this little brother named Ben. And yet dad doesn't look so excited. And so he goes on to say, son, I'm, we, got a little, we got a little brother, but mama didn't make it. Mama died in labor. And here is this 12-year-old boy I don't know if you could picture him in your mind's eye standing beside the open grave of his mom. He has lived a lot of life in these handful of years. And up to this point, it's tragedy after tragedy. And by the way, none of it is because of his wrong. I think if, there's, if, if anyone has a reason to be bitter against the circumstance in life, it might have been Joseph. If anybody had a reason to be angry, uh, disobedient, depressed, given up on God, it might have been him. Life just keeps throwing him down over and over and over again. And here comes just one after another. He gets back up. He gets thrown back down. gets back up. And by the way, as you see, it's just getting started. It's going to get far worse for Joseph. And now we find him. We're introduced to him here in, in chapter 37. And he's 17 years old. So he's a high school senior. All right. Any, any high school seniors here this morning? There's a few of you. He's 17-year-olds. 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, you around uh, this age? I, I, I pray, in particular for my, the older teenagers who call this church home, that you'll be attentive to the study of Joseph. I, I think it's a, incredibly helpful for you to see that just because you're a teenager doesn't mean you need to be rebellious. You don't need to lie to your parents. You don't need to break God's commandments. You don't need to drive like a maniac. Right? Just because you're a teenager, you don't need to play video games uh, all day long, and ask your mom where your pants are, okay? Uh, you, you can be, you, listen, a teenager, you could, act, you could get a job, right? You could keep your word. You could find your own pants, okay? You, you could begin to take responsibility over your own life, right? Say, so really, I could do that? Yeah, you could do that. And Joseph's going to show you this, right? Just be, in other words, just because you're young doesn't mean you, could, you need to be immature, Life, just because life is hard, Joseph's going to show you, you don't, doesn't mean you need to be depressed or deceitful. You can be young and godly. You can, you can be young and cling to Jesus. right? You can make Jesus the center of your life. You can say, I, I'm 17 and I want to live a life that honors Christ above all things. And if you're here today and you're, you're a teenager, perhaps you would even pray this, this very moment, God, Help me see the faith of Joseph and that I might have something similar to it. And Joseph, this incredibly godly young man, yet he seems to need a little wisdom. At least that's how I read it as we continue on in verse 2. And Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Uh, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, you remember that, that dad, Jacob, has, has, has two wives and two girlfriends, or concubines, whatever you want to call them. He's got Rachel and Leah. Rachel's now has, is, has died. You have Leah there. Leah has six sons, so about half the tribe comes from Leah. And then he has the two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. They each have two sons. And so Joseph is out with the son's of the concubine, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And so they're out together as a team. So he's got Joseph, the son of the favored wife, and then the four sons of the girlfriends. And you could, I think, perhaps already imagine there's probably not a lot of love between them. And Joseph sees them. He sees that they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And he, what does he do? He brings a bad report. He runs back and tells dad, hey, dad, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Now, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident, knowing what I know about these sons of Jacob, that it, they were not doing what they were supposed to do. I don't think Joseph is lying. But it is interesting that the word report there, in verse 2, 
is almost always used in the negative sense. In fact, is used always in the negative sense, except perhaps in this verse. We're unsure. Negative sense in the sense that it's almost always used as a lie or as an embellishment, right, or as an exaggeration, putting somebody in the worst light possible. Now, so I, I don't know, but it, perhaps Joseph is embellishing about his brothers. Perhaps he enjoys telling on them. You know, some kids love to be a tattletale. I'm telling mom, and they get so excited that they get to do so. You might see a little bit of some of that immaturity here in Joseph. I can't be sure, but it, certainly this bad report doesn't endear him to his brothers, as we'll see. And yet, it does seem to endear him to Jacob. Jacob seems to, to love it. He certainly loves Joseph, as you see in verse 3. Now, Israel, that's just Jacob's other name. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And so we're told that dad, Jacob, not only loved Joseph, but he loved Joseph more. Like, I, I love this boy more than all my other sons. Now, stop me if you've heard this before in our study of Genesis. Right? Any dads love one son over another? Yeah. Isaac. Jacob's father loved Esau more than Jacob. Remember how that worked out? Yeah. Because of that, Jacob stole from his dad, lied to, lied to his dad, stole from his brother, right? Had to run away as a coward. Never saw his mom again. Destroyed the entire family. That favors him. Blew up that family. And you think of any, anyone in this world, who would not have favoritism among his sons, it would be Jacob, right? The very victim of such favoritism. And so uh, we would hope that, but he is Jacob after all. And so evidently he does not learn from those mistakes. And so he has his favored son. Uh, may I, I, I know I've had opportunity to encourage you in this. Um, may I do so just once more, I think. Uh, parents, beware of the folly of favoritism. Beware of the folly of favoring one child over the other. Now, we, our kids are different. We're going to love them differently. Some, some of my kids love cuddles. Some of my other kids love dead arms, okay? And so um, I have to make sure I give the cuddles to the right one and dead arms to the, to the right ones. That's how they feel loved. Uh, kids are going to be different. We love them differently, but we need to work hard to be obvious with our love and affection with our children and, and affectionate with all of our children. Well, uh, Jacob fails this lesson. He loves Joseph the most. And uh, not only does he love him the most, he seems to want to make sure everybody knows that he loves him the most. And so you note the gift that he gives him there in verse 3. Uh, and he made him a robe of many colors. Okay? So here's the coat of many colors. Um, th that's not really my style, to be honest. I, I don't know if you, men, you want to, I don't know. I, I picture like uh, Snoop Dogg walking around, uh, you know, you know, so, it just seems a little gaudy to me. Um, it's actually, we're not sure if that's a, a correct translation, code of many colors. Literally, I think your footnote might say this in your Bible, a richly ornamented coat. And so uh, regardless of what it is, it's, it's beautiful, it's expensive. Joseph, in other words, is shopping at Nordstrom's. The other brothers are buying their clothes at Dollar General, okay? And uh, dad's just lavishing money on Joseph, uh, this richly ornamented coat. Now, almost every commentator describes this coat by saying it is a coat that reaches down to the wrists and would reach down to the ankles. Uh, the, the reason that's important is it's a, it's, a, it's a garment you would not do manual labor in. We see a similar described coat in 2 Samuel that's worn by royalty. Now, we know these men are nomads. They're shepherds. They, they're working men. They would wear tunics, which would have no sleeves and would come down to their knees. And yet Joseph doesn't get a tunic, he gets a robe. In other words, he's not wearing overalls, he has a suit on. Now what's a suit best used for? I mean, what is that, in other words, what does this suit communicate about him? Well, it meant in this relationship that he had authority. It's a status symbol. This is the apparel of management, right? This would be one who is exempt from manual labor. I've heard that men in India will grow their pinky nail about two or three inches long. You think, why, why would they do that? Well, it's not to be gross, though it is gross, right? Uh, it's to show that they're exempt from manual labor. I don't do manual labor. And it's a status symbol for them. Well, Jacob, you know, what, what we have here, Jacob and sons has a new manager. It's their younger brother, Joseph. Right? Does that sound fun? 
I mean, how, any older brothers want their younger brother managing them? Well, we'll see how that works out as we consider, secondly, the hatred of Jacob, Joseph's brothers. Notice verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to them. So they're already not doing so good with Joseph because of the bad report. Now Joseph has become their boss because why? Dad loves him more than all the rest. And so here comes Joseph in his fancy coat, and his brothers are all really ticked off, as you can imagine. And every time he puts on the coat, they must have just a reminder of dad's love for him. They must be thinking, I hate that coat, and I hate Joseph. Right? It's very clear they hated him, we're told. And notice, by the way, whom they hated. They're, they're not hating dad because of his favoritism. They're hating the brother for receiving it. That'd be like hating your husband's mistress, but not hating your husband for having a mistress. In fact, I think even more so because Joseph's not at fault at all. He's not doing anything wrong. And yet their brothers hate him. And he, once again, stop me if you heard this for, before in the study of Genesis. Any sibling rivalry you've seen in Genesis? Cain and Abel, perhaps, Isaac and Ishmael. We've seen Jacob and Esau, obviously, and now Joseph and all his brothers. In fact, the word brother is used 21 times in Genesis 37. 21 times, brother, 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 brother. You're just going to read that over and over again. But there's nothing about a brotherhood in it. it, it it's brothers used like the, the word Philadelphia is used sometimes. You know, the city of brotherly love. Uh, I don't know uh, if you've ever been to Philadelphia, but it doesn't live up to that name. I once took a bunch of teenagers to a, a, a Phillies game where they're playing the Dodgers. And I convinced the boys there to take their shirts off and paint Dodgers in big blue across their chests. About halfway through the, uh, the first inning, we were uh, reseated. So they would say, well, can we upgrade your seats? Which meant we want to put you away from any other person living in Philadelphia. And so they sent us way, way over there in order to keep us safe. Okay? That's the kind of brotherhood that we have happening here. It's not really, you know, this, oh, we really love this guy. No, there's no love at all. There just seems to be hatred and uh, uh, pretty, pretty upset with him as we see this this hatred destroying these relationships. And, you know, you think, okay, well, the family seems to be struggling here. Um, I wonder where God is in the midst of it. Well, God is actually going to pour some gasoline on this fire, as you see in verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. The dream, as we've seen, is from God. Note verse 6. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Right. In other words, Joseph's saying, I'm not just dad's choice to lead you guys. I'm evidently God's as well. Now, this dream is very subversive. This, this culture very much practices the law of primogeniture. That is, the oldest always has authority over the youngest. The oldest son will become the patriarch. He'll become the, the clan leader. Um, the younger always bows to the older. And now Joseph's saying, no, you all should bow to me. Now, there's a debate amongst the commentators. Should Joseph have kept this dream to himself? He has this dream. We're not told that he was told to tell anybody else. Right? I, I don't know if... if if you had a dream one day that you'd be king and your older brothers would be washing your car, right? Would, was that, would you go and tell them that? Would you keep that to yourself? I don't know how that would go to your house, your little brother walking in, uh, you know, uh, wearing his fancy clothes and say, one day you're going to bow to me. Uh, God told me. Uh, well, regardless of whether he should have said it, they certainly didn't like it. As you see in verse 8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I thought about entitling this sermon, They Hated Him. Right? I, I don't know if that's the third time now in, I think, like four verses, we read that their brothers hated him. Right? <laughs> they, they, hate, they hate him because of the coat. They hate him because of dad's favoritism. They hate him because of the bad report. And now they hate him even more because of these dreams that he is sharing. So uh, just to be clear, they're not annoyed with him. 
they're not thinking, do we really have to take Joseph with us this time? No, there's a deep loathing for, towards this young man. And by the way, these boys are dangerous, as we've seen. They're killers, we've seen. They're, they're kidnappers, we've seen. They're capable of terrible cruelty. And when you let hatred, listen, you let hatred fester in your heart, you too will be capable of doing terrible, terrible things. And so you could see that. But at this point, the pressure is building in this family, isn't it? I mean, the lid is about to blow off, and yet Joseph seems to keep turning up the heat. As you see in verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. All right, and, and so he's got a, a second dream, and what, <laughs> we changed the characters of the dream, but the point is, is more bowing, isn't there? Uh, the grandeur of this dream is better, just not weep bowing, but now celestial, celestial bodies one day will bow to me. I saw the sun getting down on his knees. It's going to bow to me. And so Joseph comes and shares this with his brothers once again. You can imagine how this is going. Hey, guys, I had a dream that you're all bowing to us. That's nice, Joseph. Right? Go, go get your coat and get out of here. Right? We don't want to talk to you. He comes back the next morning. Hey, guys, I had another dream. Uh-huh. This time the sun and the moon bowed down to me. Eleven stars are bowing down to me. Right? Joseph, we hate you. Just get away from us. Why don't you go tell that one to dad? He says, well, I did. And uh, he didn't like it so much, as you see in verse 10. Uh, but when he told it to his fathers, his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And so Jacob rebukes him a little bit, doesn't he? Uh, this is too much, even for this doting father. Now, I like you, son. Uh, you know that. But this dream is offensive. But there's something that gives him pause as you see in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his fathers kept these saying in mind. Right? Uh, after all, um, Jacob had received dreams too. And so something gives him some hesitancy. Yet his brothers here were told of they're jealous. So they hate him, they're jealous of him. Um, jealousy is a common theme in God's word, uh, as we've seen. Some people, I think, uh, don't, don't like it when other people do well, right? Everything's going great for them. Everything's working out for them. You have, maybe you have a sibling, better career. His family is more harmonious, right? They're, 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 they're smarter. They're, they're skinnier. They have a better job. They drive a better car. They've got more hair on their head, right? And uh, jealousy in your heart. If, if you're jealous, you should repent. That's a sin. It does you no good, by the way. Uh, certainly not going to harm them. Right? Uh, 200 years ago, someone once wrote, the odious passion of jealousy torments and destroys oneself while it seeks the ruin of its object. In other words, it's not going to do anything to its object. All it is is going to destroy the one who has it. Um, jealousy destroys a person. It's like self-pity. It just eats you up. Uh, if you're jealous, you might find help in praying for the one on who you're jealous for. Uh, F.B. Meyer uh, learned this lesson. He was an amazing preacher some time ago. Uh, in, in, he tells of how uh, his church was growing, his ministry was thriving, until Campbell Morgan moved into the same town. And all of a sudden, his ministry began to stagnate, and uh, Morgan's church began to explode, just growing like gangbusters. And Meyer says, jealousy began to grip my soul until I began to pray for Campbell Morgan. He said, I, I pray that God would bless Campbell Morgan. I pray that so many people will go to Campbell Morgan's church that they would run out of room and so then they would come back to my church. Okay? And it did. Well, you see, things are heating up in this family. We got uh, the favoritism of the father, the jealousy of the brothers. And lastly, as I think most importantly, as we kind of dig out some theology of this, the, the word from Joseph's God. The word from Joseph's God. Joseph's God. I want to just spend uh, the rest of our time just, uh, just a moment or two to exploring the content of these dreams. What are these dreams for? But before we look particularly at the dream, I think it might just be helpful. Save me a couple emails if I just make a general comment or two about dreams. Um, I, I've been asked, you know, I've been pastoring for 23 years now. I've been asked uh, a number of times to interpret dreams. I've been asked recently to interpret someone's dream. Um, and so I, I just, maybe this might help, help you if you ever have these questions. I, I think well, clearly God used, used dreams. We see this in the book of Genesis. I think, as I've already shared, I think God continues to still use dreams. But I think we need to be very careful. 
I, I, I would tell you, in, in the Bible, dreams that God gives are very infrequent. There are only two books in the Old Testament you'll find dreams. The book of Genesis, the book of Daniel. You'll find them in the New Testament, mostly in the book of Matthew uh, and a few other places. So I think, I think we need to be careful. Uh, I think it's very easy to deceive ourselves. So let me just make two general comments about dreams in general. Um, if, if you have a dream that leads you to make like a major decision or perhaps even change your theology, you should in, go to God's word and flesh that out, make sure that's in accordance with God's word, and you should talk to some Christians. You should share that before you make that change. You should seek counsel from, from your elders. Is one of the reasons you have elders, um, that they might help you navigate that. The second general thing I, I would say, if, if the dream is supposed to be important, I think God will let you know. In other words, you don't have to wake up every morning thinking, okay, was that from God? Was that what I'm supposed to do here? Right? God's going to tell you. If God's going to need to tell you something, it, it will be very, very clear. And so you don't need to be, uh, get all worked up about that. So that's just kind of dreams in general. Uh, dream, these dreams in particular, I, I think, are very interesting for us to consider. The question that I had as I was studying this, why did God at this time give Joseph these dreams? I mean, 17 years old. These dreams will be fulfilled, but it's going to be decades later. So why did God give them these dreams? I think, I, I think there's two reasons that God gave this 17-year-old boy these two dreams. One, I think it's clear from this passage, to fan the flames of his brother's hatred. I think God is trying to use these dreams, not trying, is going to use these dreams to create animosity in this family. I mean, God could have sent different dreams uh, he sent dreams in particular of the brothers bowing to Joseph. I think this is to antagonize them. I think this is to knowing their hearts to ensure their rejection of Joseph to the point in which they will sell Joseph as a slave. If there are no dreams, there is no family conflict. There is no family conflict. Joseph never gets to Egypt. Joseph, if Joseph never gets to Egypt, then everyone dies, right? as we will see. And Joseph in Genesis 45 and Genesis 50 will say, oh, by the way, God sent me to Egypt. And so he clearly sees God's hand in this. And uh, In fact, I, I think you, if you dig a little bit deeper, uh, you, you might ask, well, wh why, why are these brothers so upset about these dreams? I mean, why, why do these dreams cause so much hatred? Like if your little brother comes to you and says, you know, one day I'm going to be president and you're going to be cleaning my bathroom, you, you may be annoyed at him, right? But you disregard that. Why does it stir up so much hatred in their hearts? I suspect it's because they know these dreams are from God. And they don't, like, they don't like the content of it. I think they have a sense that God is speaking through these dreams, that it contains the future, and they hate that future. And so I think their anger is really against God's plan because God is not treating them the way that they think they should be treated. And so they hate the truth of God. They hate God's word. And this is why they'll reject the one who brings it. And I think people have always hated God's word. I mean, this is, this is what's happened. When we come and bring God's word, people are going to respond with, with hatred. Now, I've kind of poked at Joseph for sharing these dreams. Perhaps, you know, I, I suggest he's a little tone deaf and maybe he should have kept these dreams to himself. But there is another option. And the other option is maybe Joseph felt awkward sharing these dreams, but he felt compelled to because he believed them to be from God. Maybe he feared alienating his brothers, feared alienating his father, but he feared dishonoring God even more. And he had this God, uh, this sense of a responsibility given to him by God to declare what God has revealed to him. And yet in doing so, and telling the truth, this, this leads not to acceptance but rejection even by those who claim to be God's people. And reminding that Jesus says, do you think I've come into this earth to bring peace? No, I, I've come to bring Division. I've come to, to, to bring a sword. Jesus will divide humanity. He will separate out a people for himself. And if you are passionate about Jesus Christ, you are going to experience division. You're going to experience conflict. You're going to experience hatred. Jesus did so. He's told us that it's going to happen to us. Teenagers, you stand for Jesus at school. That's going to bring conflict in your life. Adults, you stand for Jesus at work. That's going to bring conflict in your life. You stand for Jesus in your home. That might bring conflict even in your home. You say, is that painful? Yes, it's incredibly painful. Is that hard? Of course it's hard. Is Christ worth it? A thousand times he's worth it. Following Jesus will cost you. But I'll tell you, the cost of not following Jesus is far greater. 
And so he comes and shares this with these brothers, and, and they don't want any part of it. I think the brothers actually help us see that we need to learn to take and receive God's truth from anyone about anything. In other words, beware of rejecting God's word because you don't like the person who's bringing it. Right? What, what, if they, what if the person bringing God's word is irritating? Right? Should you still receive it? Yeah. 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 That's not biographical, by the way. Okay. <laughs> what if you're envious of them? Should you still receive it? Yeah. What if, what if, what if you don't like what they say and it's God's word? Should you still receive it? Beware of rejecting God's word because you don't like what it says. I mean, this dream seems very egotistical. All are going to bow to me. You're all going to bow down. Come, get on your knees before me. And so they don't like it, so they disregard it. How many people disregard God's word today because they don't like it? I don't like hell. Let's get rid of it. Right? I don't like the exclusivity of the gospel. Let's get rid of it. I don't like uh, gender roles in the family. Let's get rid of it. I don't like predestination, let's get rid of it. Right? We, 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 we don't like the Jesus of Scripture. Right? And, and so what, what people do is they, they get rid of the parts they don't like. This is happening all over the place. In, in, in fact, we, we just make a new Jesus in the mold that we like. You know, Mormons, they have a Jesus. And Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a Jesus. And Muslims, they got a Jesus. And Buddhists and Hindus, they all like Jesus. Right? I went to school in Northern California. I found out hippies love Jesus. You know, Republicans also love Jesus, and fundamentalists love Jesus, and racists love Jesus, and Marxists love Jesus, and feminists love Jesus, and anti-Semites love Jesus, and homosexuals love Jesus. Everyone seems to be totally happy with Jesus as long as he supports what I already decided I believe in. But, But when Jesus shows up and he says, actually, you know, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Marxist. Not a hippie. He shows up and actually says, I don't follow you, you follow me. I don't get on your team, you join my team. And then quite often, well, we're not so happy about that. You know, I'm fine with Jesus as long as he believes what I already believe. I think that's how this world lives. This is how the brothers are living, right? They, they, they look to Joseph, they're in verse 8, I think it is, and say, do you think you're going to reign over us? How many people say that to Jesus? Do you think you're actually going to reign over us? I mean, you can ride in the back seat and occasionally give guidance, but if you think you're going to rule my life, like you get to tell me what to do, tell me what, what to watch on TV and, and, and how to speak to each other and, and, and how to manage my money and all the rest, you think you're going to tell me that? No, no, I'm not interested in that whatsoever. I pray, may the Lord help protect us from rejecting the Bible, God's word, because it doesn't always sit well with us. You submit to it, it does not submit to you. I think one of the reasons in which God gives these dreams to Job is, as I said, is to antagonize his brothers so that they will do their dastardly deeds. We'll see in a moment. Secondly, and I'll be very quick here, that God gave these dreams to Joseph because they will be an anchor for the coming storm. The dreams tell his future. In fact, I think more than he even knows, these sheaves of wheat, they're not farmers, by the way, they're shepherds. But wheat will become very important. He gets two dreams. We'll find out later that two means it's been fixed by God. It's going to be brought about. These dreams all contain hope for the future. Uh, They're going to help Joseph be devoted to God in the midst of great difficulty. He's going to be sold as a slave as a 17-year-old, taken to a massive country where he does not speak the language, bought by a person, put in work in his house. He's going to be accused falsely of rape. He's going to be forgotten in a dungeon. They're going to put a rusty collar around his neck and bind it to a pole. And he's going to spend his 20s wasting away in a dungeon, in, in in a land not of his own. You think that's hard? What's going to hold him to God? What's going to keep him seeking after the Lord in the midst of those those dark and difficult days? Well, it is the very promises of God that he gives to him. They are candles leading him in this this dark time. And part of the reason why we we consider God's word every Sunday is is to discover what God has promised uh, to us that we might hold on to them, in particular in times of trouble and difficulty. We want the peace of God to rule in our hearts, as Colossians 3 tells us, but as we learned in our study of the book of Colossians, that the peace of God doesn't float down from heaven, like God give me peace and whammo, here comes the peace, like it's some kind of drug. It's a thinking peace. 
It's a reasoning out piece. We go back to the word and we see what God has said to us, what is true, and we fight to believe that in the midst of darkness and difficulty and hardship. And so God says, Joseph, this is what I'm going to do for you. I promise this will happen. And Joseph receives those promises in the midst of trouble and difficulty. He is reminded, God one day will exalt me. God will exalt me. And I'll tell you this morning, if you're a Christian, God has made that promise to you as well. Right? Paul says, we don't lose heart for these light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You're going to inherit the earth. You want to hear about exaltation. You see, these, these promises are in some sense laying out our future as well. But yet, here, I think, as we end this morning, jo Joseph's dreams don't simply point, point out what God's going to do for us or, or even simply point out what God's going to do for Joseph. I think they chiefly point out what God intends to do for Jesus. You do know that Jesus, too, was favored by the Father. Jesus also brought a bad report of his brothers. So much so that he was hated by them because of it. Hated so much that they would plot his very murder. You see, just, just like Joseph, this hatred towards Jesus by his, by his very kin, right, is God's means for salvation. How will God save Israel? Through the hatred of Joseph's brothers is going to use that to bring salvation to Israel. How will God save us? Through the hatred of Jesus' kin so that he might put him upon a cross because of their hatred. And yet in that act of hatred, he is bearing God's wrath that is due for you. And for me, he's being our substitute so that the nations might come to him, might be saved, might be forgiven, that you might be forgiven, that you might be saved by God, that you might become a child of God. So how do I become a child of God? Well, I wonder if these dreams not only help us to do, understand that, that, our, uh, that, that when Joseph, our Joseph, the Lord Jesus is exalted, what shall we do? We too shall bow before him. And if you do, if you bow before Christ in faith and turn from your sins, I tell you by God's, God's word, he will forgive all your sins and receive you into his family and save you forever. And I think ultimately that's what Joseph is going to continually point us to the great and glorious work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we think about that work, uh, we come to this table now. Let us pray. Father, uh, we're thankful for this pointer to our Lord uh, and this encouragement from your word. You are in control of all of life, and we thank you for it. Uh, may we believe that. May we walk in faith. May our God's hand rest upon us, whether we're here um, experiencing times of delight and happiness or times of hardship and misery. Um, this, this, this story will show us you reign over it all and do so for good. And if we doubt that you intend good for us, I pray this meal that we're about to take would banish all suspicion of you. For he who gave us his own son, will he not therefore give us all things in Christ Jesus? Help us to rejoice in that truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.